And the rest of us are going to be in one of my favorite Old Testament books, and I know for many of you it's your favorite as well, and that is the book of Ruth. Ruth, yes. I uh, went round and round about what to preach on during these next uh, few weeks. God kept bringing my thoughts back to this particular book. This is a book that um, I preached on before. And yet, for some reason, and, and maybe there's something in myself or something in you that needs to hear what's going on in this book, and especially how it speaks to our own lives and our own decisions, maybe our own insecurities as well. Because Ruth is a book in which you see the full glory of God working in the big picture, but hidden in the lives of very ordinary people and their actions. And that's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful thought to think that I don't have to be King David or I don't have to be Solomon. I don't have to be the prophet Daniel to make a difference eternally for the kingdom of God. I can be me, just like Ruth was. Nothing special in the eyes of the world. And that's where we're going to be. So in Ruth 1, that's where we'll be today. So we'll take four weeks on this. There's four chapters. Works out real well. Um, We're going to be talking about the decision that changed the world. And we'll get into why I put it like that. But before we do, and we'll pray here before we read the scripture, I just want you to think about that idea of a decision that changed the world. I was looking online, you know, just Googling the question, most momentous decisions in human history. And most of them were about some military leader or some political leader, maybe some scientific discovery. Uh, but, But usually it's something like, you know, Julius Caesar deciding to cross the Rubicon and, uh, and that way that changed Rome from a republic to um, this empire with an emperor and set the stage for that. That was a momentous decision, changed the course of world history. And yet I can't help but wonder if a decision by a young Moabite widow on the plains of the Jordan didn't change the world more than Julius Caesar and all that he did. And I can't help but wonder then at the small decisions that I make and that you make, the same might not be true of them. Let's pray as we begin, and then we'll look at Ruth chapter 1. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. (laughs) As that song said, we will never understand the depths of it. Help us to understand it more, though. And Father, in particular today, as we look at the story of Ruth, I pray that you would guide my words so that they would be right and they would be pleasing to you and they'd be helpful to all of us. I know you've already blessed me through some of the things, uh, even this morning, reviewing them. So thank you. And I pray that you do that for all of us in different ways that our hearts need. Some of us will need encouragement because it seems like we're not making a difference and things aren't going well. Or even like Naomi, we may feel that you're against us, or at least have forgotten us. Some of us may need to be challenged to some area of steady sacrifice, even though we don't see the results. There may be one or a dozen other ways that you want to apply the truths of this. So Holy Spirit, we pray your free reign right now. We open our hearts to you and ask that you would guide us through your scriptures today, please. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. We are going to read chapter 1, the entirety of chapter 1. That's not a roll-on chapter. It's this beautiful story. But before we do, 
in order for us to get a little bit of understanding as we go into the story of Ruth, let's, uh, let's take a minute to orient ourselves to what's happening, uh, the time and the place, the context here a little bit. Now, where is Ruth, the story happening? It focuses on two cities, Bethlehem, well, a city and then a land, this little town of Bethlehem, and then Moab, which is all the way down here. And you're going to see uh, the, the journey that's been made here by, by Naomi and her husband and family. Now, historically, it's around the time 1380 to 950 BC. The date's less important than the meaning of what's going on in Israel's history or in redemption history. In the last verse of Judges, which in canonical order is right before this, but it's also enmeshed with this because the first verse in Ruth tells us the story is in the time of the Judges. The last verse of Judges looks back at all the ways that Israel has failed over this hundreds of years that the book of Judges covers. And if you remember that book, you know the story, you know the cycle, right? Israel is blessed by God, and then when they get a little bit of prosperity and safety, they blow him off. They begin worshiping idols. They begin rejecting his ways. And what does God do? He takes his hand of safety off. They get invaded by foreign people because they were never the strong, well, hardly ever, the strongest kid on the block. And what happens? They, they eventually begin crying back to God for, for help and deliverance. And he says, all right. And he sends a judge, which in this context is more of a military leader or deliverer than some guy sitting on a bench with a black robe. He sends a judge to come and deliver them. And that's why you have the great stories of Samson and Ehud and, and all these other guys. And then what happens? Well, they get delivered. There's some prosperity, a little bit of peace and stability. And they blow up God again because they don't sense the need. You have the cycle going again and again and again. I mean, there, there's like 12 cycles of the, that this happens. But it, it actually kind of gets, it's a downward cycle. It actually kind of gets worse until you have two of the most disturbing perverse, gross stories in all of Scripture recorded in the last part of Judges. And then you come to this last verse. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what they saw fit. So this is the context of when the story is happening. And this is part of the reason God gives us this story, to show us how he fixes this, by the way. All right. Uh, related to this. So, you're, you're going to notice in the story that even though God is doing a great thing, it doesn't look like it because there aren't any miracles in the story. And we may think, well, that's kind of strange, but actually it's not. Because if you look at all biblical history, you're going to find that there are really about three seasons of, miracle, of miracles. Now, of course, God can do a miracle anytime he wants. These aren't the only times he did miracles. But the times where you see miracles really kind of dominate what God is doing and its actions with, with people are these three. And, and it's no coincidence then that these are miracles that are intended to be signs to say, hey, follow this guy, listen to him because he's got my power. So Moses and Joshua, they're establishing the people of Israel. God wanted to show that they had his authority. And Elijah and Elisha, as they, I, I think it's like the bartender making the last call. This is your last chance, Israel. Get back, follow God again, or all the curses of the covenant are going to come into play, including the exile. And then, of course, Jesus and the apostles. They bring a new testament, a new covenant, 
where all the things have changed. Well, not all of them, but the most important ones about our relationship to God is now going to come through this person who died on a cross and the righteousness that he brings us. So in, in any case, the, what I'm trying to get across here, and one of the things you're going to see in this book, God is at work, but it doesn't look like it. Because there isn't anything spectacular. He's not sending fire from the sky. He's not parting the Red Sea. He's working through the very ordinary actions of ordinary people. All right, last thing, and then we'll get into this. Um, many of you know that most languages, um, each name has, has a meaning. They're not just random letters. And that's certainly true in Hebrew. Elimelech means God is king. Bethlehem means house of bread. Naomi, her words mean... Her name means pleasant. Ruth means refreshment. Mara means bitter. And Boaz means in him is strength. Now, we're going to come back to this, but I want us to put these out here as we read this story and maybe begin to see that this story is not just a love story about Ruth and Boaz. This is a story that is answering the question really evoked in this name, is God really king? Is he really still at work and his people establishing this? It's answering that question, but it's also answering this question, how, how can Naomi be brought from, from bitterness to pleasantness or back to that? Or how can she be brought from emptiness to fullness? And how do those two ideas of God working in the life of this elderly widow and God working to bring about his great kingdom, how do they fit together? That's the story of Ruth. All right, we're just going to be in chapter 1 this morning. So I'm going to read this here. You can follow along. I have the NIV. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem. That means they were the tribe of of Ephraim, and they went to Moab and lived there. <clears throat> now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi, no, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people and provided food for them. Naomi and her people, or and her daughter-in-law, prepared to return home from there. And with her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown kindness, uh, as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who can become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. 
At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried with you. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her to go. So the two women went on and they arrived in Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I love this story. I can almost picture Orpah and Ruth there on the plains of the Jordan River, the border between Moab and Israel as they made their choice. And as they go down into that, before then, as she goes down into the land, Naomi, with her husband and her children, um, now she comes back. Let's just spend a little bit of time working through this, and then I want to talk about some of the implications of the story. We're not told if it was a good idea or not for Naomi to leave the people of God, to leave the land of God and go to Moab. And she's not the only person who's done that in the Old Testament. But we can't help but wonder that as she goes there, she may have second-guessed a decision. Maybe her husband urged her, or maybe she went along with it, but now things have turned out so bad that she's probably second-guessing she maybe feels like the Lord's hand is against her because of all the misfortune that's come about. So she goes down into this land, and she's got a husband. She's got two sons. A great blessing in the ancient society, right? This is what a woman would want. And yet as she goes, her husband dies. Elimelech, God is king, has passed away. That is not a good omen for her or for the people of Israel. Her sons married two Moabite women. But after a while, after 10 years, they too die. Now, think about that for a second. You're Naomi. How are you interpreting this? Your husband dies. You're both your boys die. And not only that, but for 10 years, they were married to these young women, and you had no grandkids. This was not an age of birth control, right? Woman married 10 years without children. That is a sign, you know, that she would probably interpret that God's hand really was against her. So she's left. What seems to be empty. She makes a decision. She's heard the, the famine has gone away from, from Bethlehem. She makes a decision to go back. She is not in a good place. She's going to go back to Bethlehem 
At least you'll know some of the people. But you have to remember, this is not a society that has Social Security and Medicare. This was a society where if you were an elderly woman, you were provided for by your husband, by your children, by your grandchildren. She's got none of that. Her hands are empty. At least that's what it seems. The only thing she has, which is a, a joy that, and, a, and a blessing that she doesn't understand the full depth of yet, is she has a woman named Ruth, a Moabitess. The text emphasizes again and again. And Ruth makes a decision there on the plains of the Jordan. She sees Orpah goes back. The Bible, the text doesn't give any condemnation for her. She did the thing that most people would do. It was in Orpah's best interest, seemingly at least, to go back. She had her family. She had her own people. She'd find another husband there. There were connections. She did what was in her best interest. No blame is attached to her, but it highlights the sacrifice that Ruth made then, right? Because Ruth is not looking out for her own interests. She is making a move of sacrifice and devotion. Because she knows what awaits Naomi, no matter where she goes, hunger, worry, anxiety. And Ruth has it in her mind, okay, <laughs> uh, I am a woman, but at least I'm young, I'm strong, I can work. I can at least help her that way so that she is not destitute. So there in the plains of the Jordan, she she utters that beautiful and famous uh, speech. <laughs> Did she have any idea this would be recorded? Don't urge me to go. Where you go, I go. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you bury, where, where you die and are buried, that's where I'm going to. That decision changed everything. Even though no one knew it at the time. It was a decision in my mind, probably bigger than Caesar's crossing the Rubicon or not. That decision in the plains of Moab by a 25-year-old, 28-year-old Moabite widow changed everything. It changed it because we're getting ahead. But what you're going to see is that what God does is establishes for his people Israel the great kingships of David and Solomon and all the rest through the line of Ruth. That's where the big story comes into play. And through that, right, she is also then in the line of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying God couldn't have done it some other way. Of course, his plans or purposes are, are much greater. What I'm saying is, when she makes that decision on the plains of Jordan, it has consequences beyond anything she could see. It has eternal consequences. Without that decision on the plains of Jordan, at least, again, from a human point of view, or I mean, God could have done somewhere else, but according to what did happen, without that decision on the plains of Jordan, there would be no David. There would be no Solomon. There would be no Jesus Christ that has come into this world as our Savior to bring his eternal kingdom. Yes, God could have done it another way. I, I understand that, agree with that, but this is how he did do it. 
She made that decision. It changed the world. It changed the world. Now, let's develop this just a little bit then. I want to talk about something I've already kind of uh, hinted at. And we're going to look at, at the way that these, these levels of the story kind of intertwine. And then we're going to talk about, all right, what does this mean to you and me? <laughs> Here in Franklin, Indiana in 2021, what do we do with this? And why is this a blessing to us? All right, so remember how we talked about how there's actually a couple of questions being asked here. One's kind of related to Elimelech's name. How can God be king when everything is going south, when everything is dysfunctional, when everything is getting worse? How could God ever be king? And this book shows how God works to answer that through the lives of very ordinary people. And then the second level that we see very clearly is Naomi's level, Ruth's level, the, the level of individual people. So this is also a story of how God brought Naomi from emptiness to fullness. And it's a story of how those two things go together. Now we could also see, of course, the larger pur purpose, redemption story. Why is King David important? Well, he's not just some ancient historical king like Gilgamesh or something like that. King David is important because he is the predecessor, but also the symbol of the king, the great king, Jesus Christ. So in the redemption story, David comes before Christ. He's in the line of Christ, but more importantly, David is the human symbol of what this Jesus will be like, at least David, when he's functioned with God. Of course, he didn't always. But David at his best is, gives a hint, gives us a, a human picture of what God will do through Jesus Christ. So the story is actually operating on three levels. And, and here's the thing, your story does too. My story does too, they always do, because God's in the, in the picture. So let's talk about these here. There's an individual level in the book of Ruth, how God breaks Naomi from emptiness to fullness through the selfless love of Ruth. Oh, and by the way, um, some of these are in your, in your bulletin, but I also, if you're on the church email list, you should have gotten these slides in the mail. So if you don't write everything down, uh, that's fine. You'll still have those. And then you have the Israel level. How does God bring Israel from emptiness to fullness by establishing kingship through the faithful actions of individuals? And then the cosmic level, how God redeems and perfects the world by his own wisdom and by the actions of individuals. Now, here's what I'm getting at here then. What you see in Ruth is not the exception, it's the rule. What you see over and over again is that the lives worked out on the individual level, the people in the scripture, interplay with the larger picture of God's story of Israel. That's the story of the Old Testament, really. But that interplays with the larger story of why God brought Israel to be his special people, a special nation in the first place. Now for us in the New Testament, that same dynamic is true. We have a little bit more understanding in the, some of the uh, terminology has changed. For example, instead of the nation of Israel level now, I think it's better to talk about the church level, big C, worldwide church, or the kingdom of God level. Because our own stories are interacting with what this kingdom that God is bringing into this world. And then that, of course, especially if you read Ephesians 1, you see this, is very key to what God is doing cosmically. God is love. And the way he expresses that is establishing the righteous rule that brings perfection and joy to people, but he does that through his partnership with people. 
So he doesn't save us just to be objects of his mercy. We are that. But also to be partners of his power. And that's what you see, again, over and over again, where it tells us that we will reign with Christ. Ephesians 1 says, God does all this to bring everything in heaven and earth under one head, Jesus Christ, and he does this for the church, who is the body of Christ. Now, there's a lot here, and I could go on and make a sermon about each one of these, but rather I want to put this in our minds and then through that develop kind of eight things I see for us. Eight things that I see for us. What do I see here from the book of Ruth then? Looking at it through kind of this big picture lens, this theological uh, interpretation, especially for us. What does this mean to us? I think it means these things. First, God's always at work, even when it looks like he's absent. I mean, we can look at those stories in the Bible and we see the highlight reel. But the way that God normally works in his people, and you see it here in Ruth, you see it so many places, is through the simple things that he brings into their life and the simple ways they respond. God's always at work. He's never absent. Just because we don't see his dramatic answers to prayer or dramatic power does not mean he's not working. It usually means the opposite. It's, he's working in a way that we can't see. Second, <laughs> I love this. God is working for us even when, it, even when it looks like he is against us. Four times, in one way or another, Naomi says, God's against me. I get it. I understand why she would feel that way. Her husband's dead. Her boys are dead. Her children, or those boys have been married to these girls for 10 years. No kids. That seems like God's doing and maybe, again, was she judging herself because of that maybe questionable decision to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab? Was, was that a decision marked by untrust? I don't know. I'm reading between the lines. But what's very clear, what's not between the lines, right there on the page, is that four times she says, the Lord's hand has gone against me. But wait, has it? Don't we know the rest of the story? Don't we know that in this girl, Ruth, making that decision on the plains of Moab, she has a gift greater than a husband and son that God will use in incredible ways for her blessing. Listen, God never gives his life for us in order to ruin it. And our own stupidity and our own choices, if that's what happened with Naomi, they don't negate God's goodness to us. They don't negate his good plans. They might complicate it from our perspective, but God's love is so strong, so purposeful. There is nothing externally or internally, my own stupid actions, that will keep that blessing from happening. You are free to not worry about that. God is working for you. Even when it looks like he's absent or even if it looks like he's against you. Uh, third thing, we've talked about this. God's work in, intertwines all three levels. So God's playing not 3D chess. It's more like 33-degree chess here, you know. 
Uh, there's all these things in play. He sees the big picture. He sees eternally, and we don't. But God is working, intertwining all three levels. So the choices we're making, like Ruth, like Naomi's, they're going to impact future things way down the road in ways that we'll never see. We'll come back to that idea. <laughs> well, it's right here. God's work is beyond, always beyond what we can see or understand. Now, think of Naomi. Think of Ruth. They're on the plains of Moab. Naomi's going back to Israel, to Bethlehem. She's got a, a thousand questions in her mind. But probably one of them is not. Boy, I wonder how my story is intermeshing with God's big picture for, for blessing. No, she doesn't see it. God's work is always beyond what we can see or understand. God's working in Naomi's life. He's working in the life of Israel. He's working cosmically, and he's working in your life and my life in ways we will not see because God is working in all, all these levels. And maybe there's other reasons as well. We'll come back to in the last part. Third, or fifth, I guess. God uses ordinary people to do his work. God uses ordinary. In fact, he seems to delight in using those who don't really have much status in the world. Ruth is really as low on the social totem pole as you can get. I mean, she's a woman in a very man-dominated society. Secondly, she's young in a society that values elderly. Unlike ours today, it's kind of reversed, right? Third, and this is a big one, she's a Moabite. She comes back to Bethlehem, she's a foreigner. She's an alien. She's, she's someone from that land and that bloodline that's sometimes is even the enemies of Israel. One of those off-again, on-again, on off-again things, you know. And God uses this widow, infertile widow, this foreign widow, to change the world. He uses ordinary people to do his work. Sixth, God uses ordinary actions to do his work, but especially those of love and sacrifice. Now, the reason I want to bring this out is because, you know, again, we read this Old Testament. We see Daniel making that great declaration of faith in the lion's den. We, we you know, we see, um, we see Samson doing his great works, pulling down, the temple and, and defending Israel. Uh, we see all these great miraculous things that people do and these great people that do them, and we forget. 99.9% .9 of what God does in the Old Testament as well as today is by very ordinary people with very ordinary actions. The only thing that God seems to use especially are actions of love and sacrifice like Ruth's, actions that seem to go against what we want to do or maybe it seems like our best interest because of love for other people or faith in him and his kingdom. God especially seeks to use those kinds of actions. Maybe there's something like that in your life. Maybe there's something you feel this pull God asking you to do or, or to be about, or maybe there's something you want to walk away from, some situation, because you're tired of it. And... Uh, or doesn't seem to be changing anything. Maybe God is saying to you, hey, I'm using your work. You won't see it. It won't seem extraordinary, 
Trust me on this. And then this last part. God uses people in ways they will not see or understand. God uses people in ways they will not see or understand. Think of Ruth there. Think of Ruth there in the plains of the Jordan. She's making that decision between going back to Moab or going and accompanying this elderly widow back to the land she's never visited, I'm sure. Knows very little about. Did she have any idea that God would use that decision not only to bless Naomi more than she could see, but to bless the nation of Israel and through that, the world? No. It was hidden from her completely. It was hidden from her completely. I heard someone say once, you can count the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in a seed. Think about that. You take one of those seeds and you plant it in the ground and it produces an apple tree. And how many apples come out of that year after year? And maybe some of those also through their seeds plant more trees. Could you ever count that? No. And that's the way our actions are. Change the metaphor just a little bit. You know, I've got two things in my hand. They're small, as they should be for this illustration. One's an acorn and one's a stone. You know, I could plant these both in the ground, but through God's power, this one will produce something that this one never would. It will produce a mighty oak, and that mighty oak could produce many thousands, millions more of these perhaps, to establish more trees, maybe a whole section or stand of trees or even uh, filling out a woods. Could you ever figure out how many trees how much the environment would change if we had one acorn that was planted in the right place and that God saw to grow. Now, you won't see it. Most of the things we do that God will bless, we will not see how in this lifetime. We'll see some. But remember, David came three or four generations after Ruth made that decision. She wasn't alive. She didn't see the kingdom. She never saw Solomon's glory. She never saw the temple. But she brought it about, or God used her to bring it about. How does God want to use you? Can you ask that question? It's not going to be probably in some big, extraordinary way. You're not going to be this great, world-renowned uh, evangelist or politician or scientist. You're not going to be a world shaker from the world's point of view. But if this book is true, and what this Ruth especially is telling us, God doesn't want that or need that. He wants simply the faithful, sacrificial uh, actions of you, and he will use them. I want to end with one story, true story, that kind of illustrates this in a little bit different way. There's a man named... William Kimball. How many have heard of William Kimball? Probably he's not going to be in your AP textbooks, okay? AP history textbooks. Uh, William Kimball, though, changed the world. William Kimball was a small time businessman living in Boston in about 1870. William was concerned because there, there were influx of young men who were coming into Boston to make, you know, make a living in the way they couldn't do 
outside the big city. And yet they were coming in. They didn't have any family connections. They didn't know anybody. Uh, some of them were falling into bad habits. So he began starting a, a class, like a Sunday school, for these young men. One of those young men, he was a 17-year-old at the time, he came into Boston to work uh, at a relative shoe store. And um, this young man became coming to this church because his father made a conditional. If I let you go and live there, you have to go to church. So he did. He didn't know the Lord, though. William Kimball had established this class, but he had also made it his desire to visit each one of those young men. And so on a day in 1870, he made his way to Helton's shoe store. He said this was really outside of his comfort zone. He kind of told about this later. In fact, he walked past it, and then he walked back, second-guessing, okay, should I visit this guy at work? Seems like the only place. Like, he found the young man on break. And he explained the gospel to him. And what he said was, later on, he recalled, it was a very weak presentation. And yet that 17-year-old young man was convicted by the Spirit of God and was saved. And God used that 17-year-old young man named Dwight Moody to preach his gospel to estimated 100 million people on two continents. He changed the world. And he did it through a nobody named William Kimball. What's cool is that the story doesn't even end there. Through his ministry, uh, Moody influenced a London pastor named F.B. Meyer, and Meyer became uh, an evangelist because what he saw Moody was able to do. Meyer was responsible for another man who became an evangelist, J. Wilbur Chapman, coming to Christ. Chapman influenced another evangelist named Billy Sunday. He was a, a well-known evangelist in the early part of the 20th century. Billy Sunday was integral to uh, a man named Mordecai Ham coming to faith. Mordecai Ham was a preacher responsible for bringing a young man named Billy Graham to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Some of us, like myself, have been brought to the faith by parents or grandparents who are brought to the faith through Billy Graham. Think William Kimball had any idea that 150 years later on two continents and more, that decision that he planted would still be bearing fruit, multiplied in its fruit. No. And you and I won't have any idea how the decisions we make out of love and sacrifice and faith in God's kingdom will change the world.